Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called The Berserk Incident. It's written by press reporter Lee Kenny, who joins me now. Hi, Lee. Hi, Mike. So, The Berserk Incident, uh, what is your Robert Ludlam fan fiction about? Essentially, it's an adventure story, but it's also a tragedy, and uh, I guess my take on it is that it's a mystery. At the centre of the story is a yacht called the Berserk and its crew, the Berserkers, who sailed down to Antarctica in the early part of 2011 in the hope of landing two men ashore to reach the South Pole to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Roald Amundsen's conquest of Antarctica. Sadly, many things went wrong and three members of the crew lost their lives. So that's a... An intriguing start. Um, how did you come across the story? It sounds yeah, quite dramatic. So it has a very strong New Zealand connection, uh, even though the crew were uh, mostly Norwegian. Four of them were Norwegian, one was South African British. They set sail from Auckland, and um, despite the strong connections with New Zealand and the search which was carried out for the boat, which was undertaken by uh, New Zealand uh, Rescue Coordination Centre and uh, New Zealand Navy, the story is relatively unknown here. There was some reporting around the time, and the reason for that is that the ship sank on February 22nd, 2011, which, of course, was the day of the Christchurch earthquake. So the quake happened just a few hours before the distress signal of the berserk was activated, and although a reasonably substantial search was undertaken, the boat was never recovered and the three members of the crew were never found. So, yeah, we, I think we covered it briefly but not very much how did how did you stumble across it or come across it 10 years later so a colleague uh, will harvey uh, who does much of the science reporting uh, for the press and stuff uh, sent me a link to uh, an american article uh, i'm education reporter on the press but i do most of the antarctica reporting as well so will thought that it might be just an interesting read for me and i was absolutely captivated and it told an aspect of the story uh, an interview was given by the expedition leader Uh, to an American journalist, but it felt like there was a lot more to say. An implication was made that the New Zealand Navy had told the crew to leave safe anchorage and they headed out into the storm, which claimed the loss of their lives. So I was interested to see whether there was any evidence to support this and spent about six months tracking down nine people in various countries around the world who were directly or indirectly involved in the expedition and the subsequent search to try and see if I could get to the bottom of the mystery. So the key question then that we're about to dive into is why this boat sank, why it found itself in this storm, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, three members of the crew were on board the boat. They were waiting for the two others to uh, successfully reach the pole and return. But for some reason, they left safe anchorage and headed out knowing that a huge storm was about to blow through. And it's never been known why they did. Did the Navy tell them to leave? Did they leave of their own volition or were there some other reasons? All right, thanks, Lee. Let's get into it. Here is Lee Kenny with a small bit of strong language reading his story, The Berserk Incident. The storm was ferocious. 
the winds neared 200 kilometers an hour and icebergs were tossed around by 10 meter waves. A New Zealand naval commander would later describe it as the worst conditions he had experienced in three decades at sea. Before it was over, it claimed the lives of three men, Leonard Banks, Tom Giesler-Bellica, and Robert Scarness. They were members of the Wild Vikings, a group of adventurers who sailed to Antarctica in a yacht called Berserk. Two other teammates, Yala Andhoy and Samuel Massey, were ashore, attempting an audacious expedition to the South Pole. They called themselves the Berserkers, an old Norse word meaning fierce warrior. At first glance, the Berserk was not a typical Antarctic boat. She had shark's teeth painted on the hull, and her name was emblazoned on the sides, graffiti style. At 14 metres, she was relatively small, but she was ice-strengthened, and her crew were highly competent sailors. One of them was South African and British. The four others were Norwegian. They flew the conga flagget, the red, white and blue Norwegian flag from the boat's stern. After leaving New Zealand in January 2011, they sailed to Antarctica to mark the centenary of Roald Amundsen's conquest of the South Pole. The vessel was skippered by Andhoy, the expedition leader. With pale blue eyes and unkept hair, Andhoy cut a sort of rock star adventurer figure. He had a reputation for daring exploits but he could also be reckless. Once, as part of a Bear Grylls-style documentary for Norwegian TV, he approached a wild polar bear. On another occasion, he had a dangerously close encounter with a walrus. His Antarctic endeavour was no different. If successful, he and Massey would be the first people to reach the bottom of the earth on quad bikes. But to get there, they would face freezing temperatures and the risk of falling into one of the many crevasses, the deep fissures that scar the Antarctic landscape. The other issue was timing. Most South Pole expeditions are launched between November and January, ideally after wintering over on the ice. The berserkers planned to cross the frozen continent in February, late in the polar season, when the weather would be much worse. After Andhoy and Massey went ashore, Banks, Bellica and Skarnis dropped anchor in a sheltered cove in McMurdo Sound. The plan was they would wait until the land team returned. But, inexplicably, the three men decided to leave the bay and sail into a polar storm. They were never seen again. Samuel Massey was a typical disaffected teen. The son of a Norwegian mother and British father, he was studying mechanical engineering at a tertiary college in Bergen, but he frequently skipped classes. He also smoked weed and came close to being arrested for possession when a local dealer asked him to sell dope. Life could have turned out very differently. One day, he arrived home to find a letter informing him his application to attend an outdoor college in northern Norway had been accepted. Massey was confused. Eventually his mother confessed 
she had applied for him. Massey thrived at the college and caught the eye of charismatic sailing instructor Yala Andhoy. At the end of the course, Andhoy took Massey aside and said he was impressed with the teenager's seamanship and determination. He explained his plan to celebrate Amundsen's voyage and offered him a place on the berserk. Massey didn't hesitate. Count me in, he said. It was mid-2010. Massey was 17 years old and had to get his parents' permission before joining the crew of the berserk. After a stopover in Singapore, he flew to Darwin, Australia, where he met his shipmates. Robert Scarness, a childhood friend of Andhoy, was the boat's chef. A former gymnast, he served in the military and had a young daughter in Norway, whose picture he carried everywhere he went. Lenny Banks was a carpenter who lived for surfing and reggae music. A South African and British national, he had long blonde hair, a laid-back manner and an easy smile. Everyone agreed he was the ladies' man of the group. American Edwin Kumar was the Berserk's engine man. He had studied aerospace engineering at UCLA, earning the nickname Rocket. He met Skarnes and Banks while backpacking in Asia and agreed to join the crew. He was only meant to go as far as Darwin, but picked up sailing quickly and was good with a video camera. Andhoy was shooting a TV documentary about the voyage and asked Kumar to go with them to Antarctica. He accepted. It was the trip of a lifetime. From Australia, the berserkers sailed through the Torres Strait Islands and around Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. Massey later wrote an account of the expedition entitled Hold Fast, and it reads like a boy's own adventure. They swam in shark-infested waters, visited deserted islands and met isolated tribespeople. About this time, Kumar began to question Andhoy's leadership. The skipper ran a tight ship, the crew were clear in their duties and there was no alcohol on board. But when they were ashore, Andhoy's behaviour would attract trouble, Kumar says. His motto was, lock your daughters away, the berserkers are in town. He got his ass kicked multiple times. Andhoy's cavalier approach extended to officialdom. He did not have the consent of the Norwegian Polar Institute to visit Antarctica and had not completed a mandatory environmental impact assessment, a requirement under the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. Things between Kumar and Andhoy deteriorated further during the Pacific crossing. Kumar scraped his knee and his leg became infected. It swelled badly and he was unable to walk. Instead of helping his crew member to get medical attention, Kumar says Antoy told him to toughen the fuck up. By the time the berserk reached New Zealand, Kumar was done. He was concerned about heading south so late in the season and says Antoy kept delaying the departure, blaming sponsors for not coming through. Kumar suspects the timing was deliberate to ensure they got better footage for the documentary. A mutual friend told him, Yale likes bad weather, because bad weather makes good TV. 
Kumar's concerns were not unfounded. Before setting sail, Antoy asked the crew to sign a contract stating they were fully aware of all dangers and the high risk of the expedition. I participate, it said, at the risk of losing my life in the harsh environment and will not hold the expedition leader or the captain responsible for any loss of life. In the end, Kumar quit. Before he left, Anhoy insisted they film his farewell for the documentary. Each of the crew had paid a medical retainer and Kumar says Anhoy would only return the cash after the scene was shot. As he stood at the Auckland Marina, he felt tears well in his eyes. Goodbye, friends, he thought. I won't see you again. The Berserk was heavily laden as she left Auckland. As well as the two quad bikes, she carried fuel, cold weather gear and enough food to winter over. Anything that didn't fit into a storage space was lashed to the deck. Kumar's replacement was Tom Gisler-Bellica, a Norwegian who had previously sailed Canada's northwest passage with Antoy. Known as the horse from the north, he was two metres tall and broad-shouldered, the embodiment of a rough, tough sailor. During the voyage, he impressed his crewmates by standing on the bow and pushing icebergs aside with his bare hands. The plan was to head as far south as possible so the quad bike team would have less distance to travel over land. It was tough sailing. The cold winds were biting and the waves were like a roller coaster. The crew had to keep a constant lookout for icebergs, each taking watch throughout the night. It was still unknown who would remain on the berserk and who would push for the South Pole with Antoy. Rolda Munson is revered in Norway, much like Sir Edmund Hillary in New Zealand, so it made sense that another Norwegian would go. As they neared Antarctica, Antoy took Massey aside and told him he would be the one. The teenager was overjoyed. The berserk sailed into McMurdo Sound, the southernmost navigable water in the world, on February 11th. Anhoy showed the shipbound crew where they would wait, a small cove on Ross Island named Horseshoe Bay. They were only to leave, he told them, if ice forced them out. The berserk wasn't the only ship heading into McMurdo Sound that week. The New Zealand Navy frigate, HMNZS Wellington, was charting a similar course a few days behind. The newly commissioned patrol ship was conducting sea trials in the lower Southern Ocean, the first time the New Zealand Navy had operated in Antarctic waters for 40 years. At the helm was Lieutenant Commander Simon Griffiths, a clean-cut and cool-headed career naval officer. The Wellington entered McMurdo Sound in the early hours of February 21st. At 7.30am, the crew sailed into Backdoor Bay, a sheltered natural harbour just south of Horseshoe Bay. To their surprise, they found the berserk anchored there. 
Private ships frequently sail to Antarctica, but favour the more accessible Antarctic Peninsula, south of Argentina. Few visit Ross Island, where New Zealand's Scott Base and America's McMurdo Station are located. In the summer months, the area is home to a steady stream of scientists, military personnel and other staff, most of whom fly down from Christchurch. If the crew of the Wellington were surprised to see the Berserk, it's not difficult to imagine Banks, Bellica and Skarnes being equally startled. As it was, the Wild Vikings were the ones who initiated radio contact. They saw the encounter as a chance to score some cigarettes. But of the Wellington's 58 crew, only seven were smokers, and, with a long voyage ahead, they were reluctant to part with their tobacco. One crew member offered them a cigar. As part of its exercises, the Wellington planned to land some crew ashore and visit Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod Hut, the base for his historic 1907-09 expedition. At 9am, a group of sailors headed ashore in a dinghy. They visited the Berserk and brought the Wild Vikings fresh fruits and vegetables, the lone cigar and a warning. A storm was forecast. Griffiths would later describe the exchange as warm, jovial and informal. But the berserkers did not disclose the real reason for their voyage to Antarctica. There was no mention of landing two people on the ice, a former Wellington crew member says, let alone the attempt at the pole. Before they parted, someone took a photo of Banks, Bellica and Skarnes as they stood on deck. The berserk's main sail is neatly folded away and the tattered Norwegian flag flies on the breeze. The sky is blue and the sea is calm. There's no indication of the tempest about to be unleashed. Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. The Berserk's emergency radio beacon was activated at 5.53pm New Zealand time on February 22nd, 2011. Official accounts of what happened next differ. What follows is taken from a report presented to the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting in 2011. The berserk was out at sea, 18 nautical miles north of Scott Base, when the beacon went off. It is not known if it was triggered by the crew or automatically activated when it came in contact with water. The signal was received by Maritime New Zealand's Rescue Coordination Centre, or RCCNZ, in New Zealand. But it was confused with another Norwegian yacht off the Australian coast with a similar identification code. By chance, the other vessel's beacon had also been activated that day. As a result of the mistake, the Berserk's distress call wasn't acted upon for 72 minutes. 
By that time, it was too late. The beacon ceased transmitting after 45 minutes, suggesting the berserk sank more than 10 metres below the surface, the maximum depth the emergency device could operate. Andhoy and Massey, nine days into their land expedition, were also caught in the storm. More than 200 kilometres from the coast, they were enveloped in a whiteout. Even before it hit, the journey had been tough going and they still had more than a thousand kilometres until they reached the pole. Their all-terrain vehicles had been fitted with tracks rather than wheels to get them across the ice, but they frequently became bogged in deep snow. The pair travelled for days with almost no sleep. As well as the freezing temperatures, there was the risk of disappearing into a crevasse. As a safety precaution, they were in contact with the berserk every six hours via satellite phone. When the storm hit, the crew didn't answer the call. At 7.40pm, almost two hours after the beacon was activated, RCCNZ relayed the distress signal to the Wellington, which was 30 nautical miles from the Berserk's last known location. The Wellington has a top speed of 22 knots, about 40 kilometres an hour. In good conditions, she could have reached the site in 80 minutes. That day, the treacherous journey took more than eight hours. We were headed into the winds, doing two or three knots, the former Wellington crew member says. If we turned, it would have capsized us. At the storm's peak, winds reached 100 knots and waves swelled to 10 metres. Later estimates suggested between 7 and 10 tonnes of ice froze to the Wellington's upper decks and superstructure, increasing the risk of capsizing the 85-metre warship. The Wellington sustained damage, and four of its six life rafts were lost overboard. It remains, Lieutenant Commander Simon Griffith says, the worst conditions I've experienced in my 30-year career. Upon reaching the activation site, nothing could be seen of the Berserk or her crew. The Wellington scoured the seas for three hours before calling off its search. Amid the chaos, Commander Griffiths was notified about the devastating Christchurch earthquake. He kept the news to himself for 12 hours. Under international law, any ship is required to come to the aid of another in distress. Along with the Wellington, two other vessels responded to the Berserk's emergency beacon. One was the Steve Irwin, a 59-metre ship that was part of the Sea Shepherd fleet. It had been in the Southern Ocean pursuing Japanese whalers. Captain Paul Watson co-founded Greenpeace in 1972 and founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in 1977. He knew the Southern Ocean well. All up, he'd spent three years navigating the waters around Antarctica. He guided his ship towards the distress signal location in increasingly dire conditions. 
The seas were actually trying to freeze around us, he says. The next morning, the Steve Irwin came across a 52-man life raft. It was far too big to be from the berserk. Despite notifying RCCNZ of the find, Watson says the centre didn't tell him it was from the Wellington and they wasted time recovering it. Conditions had improved by the time they arrived in McMurdo Sound. The Steve Irwin carries its own helicopter, which Watson dispatched to search the area. Starting where the distress signal was last recorded, the helicopter searched for 14 hours, refuelling several times at McMurdo Station. In the calm waters, they spotted food packets and life jackets from the berserk, but no sign of the missing men. The third ship to join the search was the Spirit of Enderby, also known as the Professor Kromov, a ship that ran Antarctic cruises from New Zealand. The crew received the beacon's coordinates and also began a grid search. Even the passengers were out on deck, scanning the water with binoculars for any sign of the berserk. On the ship was Rodney Russ, founder of Christchurch-based tour company Heritage Expeditions. Russ has visited Antarctica more than 50 times and knows McMurdo Sound intimately. He suspects the berserk either hit floating ice or had ice on the mast and rigging, making it top-heavy and causing it to capsize. Russ admires anyone with an adventurous spirit, but says Andhoy's polar expedition was ill-conceived and doomed to failure. You need to do your homework, he says. There's no way in the world you could reach the South Pole on quad bikes at that time of the year. You don't start going to the South Pole in mid-February. After failing to make radio contact with the berserk, Andhoy and Massey grew seriously concerned. On February 24th, Andhoy used the satellite phone to call a contact in Norway who told him the boat was missing. The pair abandoned the journey to the South Pole and headed back to Scott Base. On February 25th, the crew of the Steve Irwin recovered the Berserk's damaged life raft, 45 miles north of where the beacon was first triggered. The life raft had been unused, but the first aid kit and survival knife were missing. Paul Watson wasn't surprised. From the moment he heard about the distress signal, he doubted anyone would be found alive. It's most likely they came down on a growler, a small iceberg, he says, and crushed the hull. It went down real fast. Rodney Russ agrees. Seawater freezes at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, and he doubts the water the berserk crew went into would have been much warmer than that. Survival time would have been two minutes at most. That's the only good thing about it, Russ says. It would have been all over very quickly. On March 1st, a week after the distress signal was activated, RCCNZ formally suspended the search. It had been vast, covering more than 2.4 million hectares of the Ross Sea. Its official report recorded that the three boats, the HMNZS Wellington, the Steve Irwin and the Spirit of Enderby, searched for almost 141 hours.
A decade on, it remains a mystery why the crew of the Berserk would have left safe anchorage and sailed out to sea, knowing a storm was coming. During this investigation, three theories emerged. The most incendiary implicates the New Zealand Navy, that the Wellington ordered the Berserk, uninvited and lacking any formal permission, to leave Backdoor Bay. In a Facebook post in 2016, on the fifth anniversary of the tragedy, Yala Andhoy wrote, Our shipmates disappeared in the Ross Sea after contact with the New Zealand Navy. Today we know that the New Zealand Navy, Polar Authorities and Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Norway and New Zealand withheld information, lied about circumstances, has stolen expedition gear and erased the last traces of the Berserk Expedition 2011. He later doubled down on the theory, telling the outside online website that the Wellington made contact with the Berserk three times, was carrying out surveillance, and New Zealand set a strategy to offer no hospitality. Samuel Massey, too, doubts the cigar version and suspects the Wellington ordered the Berserk to leave. I've got no idea what would make anyone leave a safe harbour into a storm, he says. That is illogical. You just don't do it. Paul Watson, captain of the Steve Irwin, goes even further. In an interview with Stuff, he accused the New Zealand Navy not just of complicity, but conspiracy. I think that the Wellington ordered these people out of the harbour, he says. Then they tried to cover up the fact that they had any responsibility in the fact that the vessel went down. There's no other explanation as to why they would have left a safe harbour while they were waiting for two other crew members to return from their excursion to the South Pole. New Zealand was very hostile to any vessels landing in the vicinity of Ross Island without prior permission. Stuff sought a transcript of the communication between the Wellington and the Berserk under the Official Information Act, but the request was declined. However, Simon Griffith tells Stuff that no such order to leave was given. At no stage was any instruction or recommendation given to the yacht by any person from HMNZS Wellington. Any loss of life at sea is distressing, and I still think about the loss of the Berserk. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of The Long Read. If you're an advertiser and you like what you're hearing, you could help us keep making podcasts like this one. Thousands of people listen to Stuff Podcasts every day. So if you'd like to be part of one of New Zealand's biggest and best podcast platforms, go to advertise.stuff.co.nz audio and get in touch with us. Back to the show. The second theory is that the crew of the Berserk left of their own volition. Heritage Expedition's Rodney Russ questions how safe Backdoor Bay would have been in a storm. It's a precarious anchor at the best of times, he says. There's not a lot of anchoring room there. 
Such a severe storm would empty push ice out into the open water, Russ says, making the harbour unsafe. Some of that is multi-year ice, and it's rock hard. They would soon be surrounded by ice. I don't think they had an option but to leave. Russ thinks the Berserk crew probably did the right thing in leaving Backdoor Bay. They just left it too late. Lou Sanson, a former chief executive of Antarctica New Zealand, was heavily involved in the incident and remembers it well. He agrees Backdoor Bay would have been dangerous in the storm. It's exposed as hell to the south, he says. It would seem to me to be good seamanship, to look after the yacht and get into open water. The third theory emerged during this investigation. Edwin Kumar, the one-time berserk engine man, says Massey told him that he and Anhoy were beaten down by the weather on their way to the South Pole. Faced with freezing to death, Anhoy contacted the berserk to come and get them. Yale called them and said, Mayday, come and help us, come rescue us, Kumar says. They had a meet-up spot if shit hit the ceiling. That's why they left that anchorage. Yale flipped it and said the New Zealand Navy told them to leave. Kumar was in Australia when he got the call that the Berserk's emergency beacon had gone off and a search was underway. Having assisted in kitting out the yacht, his name and number were registered with RCCNZ. That's why I don't believe Yale when he said the New Zealand Navy kicked them off, he says. They wouldn't kick out a fucking vessel right before a major storm and then risk going to save them. As self-proclaimed pirates, the Berserk crew would not have left even if ordered by the authorities, he says. Those guys were trained not to leave. The only reason they would have left is if it came from Yale. Lou Sanson was one of the first people to talk to Andhoy and Massey after their aborted mission. Having abandoned the South Pole expedition, the pair travelled for 72 hours straight to reach Scott Base. They left their quad bikes and other equipment and caught the final flight of the season back to Christchurch. Sanson interviewed them when they arrived. Andhoy made no allegations against the New Zealand Navy at that time, he says. The leader of the Wild Vikings was more concerned about the search for the crew. He was convinced that his mates were still alive, Sanson says, and he was trying to mount another rescue mission. He was pleading for more resources to keep searching. Sanson grilled Andhoy about the preparation for the expedition and the lack of environmental permits. He said he knew what he was doing. He was polar trained in Norway. He just brushed me off. Andhoy was approached for this story, but said he would not comment if Massey and Kumar were also quoted. He described Kumar's theory as bullshit. Massey also denies it and says Kumar may have misunderstood the situation. Despite protests from the families of the dead men, Andhoy's plans for a documentary on the expedition went ahead. A nine-part series aired on Norwegian television in 2012. The last two episodes show the berserkers battling the elements to reach the frozen continent. That the footage even exists is remarkable. 
and Hoy carried all of it, several bags worth, with him on the South Pole trek, instead of stowing it on the berserk. Kumar always found that strange. That is something you would leave on the boat, he says, if you felt that the boat was secure. The story of the berserk has gone largely untold in New Zealand. The tragedy happened on the same day as a much larger one, the Christchurch earthquake, which killed 185 people, so it was barely mentioned in the media at the time. But more than a decade on, it still looms large in the lives of those involved. Kumar has given a lot of thought to what he would have done if he hadn't left the berserk in Auckland. I would have abandoned the boat and gone ashore until the storm blew over, he says. I wouldn't have raised sails and started the motor and gone into the middle of the storm. Never in a million years. Banks, Bellica and Skarnes did go ashore, albeit briefly, in Backdoor Bay. Research by Stuff confirmed they visited a shelter near Shackleton's hut and signed the visitor's guestbook on the day of the fatal storm. Kumar now lives in Hawaii and sails in the Pacific. I still sail a lot, but I'm a very cautious sailor, he says. I do everything the opposite of what Yale taught me. Lenny Banks' twin sister Charlene also holds Anhoy responsible for the loss of the crew. I do blame Yale, she says, because it was unsafe. It was late in the season. Ultimately, he is the captain of the ship, and he's the one that's responsible. Growing up in Cape Town, South Africa, the Banks twins were inseparable. Lenny was born first. Charlene followed two minutes later. He was my best friend, my protector, she says. He was everything to me. In their last conversation, when Lenny was in Auckland, he told her he might not make it back from Antarctica. He said, it's a 50-50 chance, but it's the risk I'm willing to take for the adventure of a lifetime. I tried very hard to get him off the boat, Charlene Banks now lives on the Mediterranean island of Malta. Not a day passes that she doesn't miss her brother. I'm living for the two of us. I just have to keep carrying on. I have all these unanswered questions, but I don't think they are ever going to be answered. I have to accept that they're gone. In 2012, Antoy and Massey sailed back to Antarctica to search for the wreckage and recover the quad bikes and equipment. None of it was there. During that second voyage, a short service was held to honour their crewmates, a year after they were lost. Antoy delivered the eulogy in Norwegian and English. 
the scene was recorded and edited to music and appeared on his Facebook page. In 2014, Norwegian authorities fined Andhoy 45,000 Norwegian krona, about 8,500 New Zealand dollars, for violating environmental protection protocols in the Antarctic Treaty. Today, Samuel Massey's life is unrecognisable from when he was a teenager in Bergen. After gaining prominence as a berserker, he was invited to appear on Skull of a Dance, or Shall We Dance, the Norwegian version of the hit show Dancing with the Stars. He didn't win, but he was a hugely popular contestant and returned the following year as the show's host. He has since become a household name in Norway his love life, marriage, and subsequent divorce fueling the gossip columns. My life has truly changed, he says. It started with my story on the berserk. As well as adjusting to his newfound celebrity, Massey has wrestled with the fact that if Andhoy had chosen someone else to attempt the poll, he would not be alive today. I've thought about it, definitely, he says, many times. The next most likely candidate would have been Robert Skarnes. Massey has been in close contact with Skarnes' parents and says they have thought about it too. In the start, I think they felt I had taken their son's life, in a way, which is understandable. Even though it's 10 years since, you still think about it. If not every day, it's every week. It's like flashes. You carry it with you. That was The Berserk Incident on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Lee Kenny and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.